This is Guns and Butter. You know, a referenda or plebiscites, right? This is the same thing. A referendum equals a plebiscite. Plebiscites, referenda, used to have a very bad name because if we go back and look, they have generally been the uh, the doorway into tyranny. They're not they're not good, stable democratic things. This is where our you know our constitutional founding fathers knew better. Uh, the coming of Napoleon as emperor of France was accomplished how? By a plebiscite, by a referendum. There was a referendum. Do you want Napoleon Bonaparte to become the emperor of the republic? And they had a big box for yes and a tiny box for no. Uh, so that's how he got it. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Behind the Brexit, the British oligarchy's deal with China. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, Your Guide Through the Worst Financial Crisis in Human History, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Obama, The Unauthorized Biography, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. He is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity and the Tax Wall Street Party. On today's program, we discuss the British Brexit referendum to exit the European Union, who and what are behind the plebiscite and why, how it will affect the British people, and the larger global financial and geopolitical context. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you very much, Bonnie. It's good to be with you again. British Prime Minister David Cameron initiated the Brexit referendum held on June 23rd in Great Britain that was a vote to either remain or exit membership in the European Union. The surprise vote, by a 2% margin, was for Britain to leave the EU. Ireland and Scotland voted to remain, but England and Wales voted to exit. Who and what was behind this referendum? Well, I, I'm very much afraid that this is one of the most colossal deception operations on world public opinion in, in recent decades. Um, the idea of a Brexit, that is to say a plebiscite with a one-time majority vote, uh, is something very, very unusual in British practice, right? Britain, Britain is, of course, uh, an oligarchy of financiers where uh, Queen Elizabeth II is kind of a figurehead leader. She's uh, sort of the prima inter pares of an oligarchy. And their decisions are made uh, top down, often in English country houses on long weekends. Uh, and that is where the, the idea of exiting the European Union actually came from. And I think we got to get right, right to the point, right? Cut to the chase. Uh, the Brexit is a uh, subsumed feature of what we will have to recognize more and more as a British-Chinese alliance. It is a strategic alliance, a financial alliance between the United Kingdom and the People's Republic of China. And for international observers, 
This became clear around the middle of October of last year. And you can go back and look at, in particular, the British press who covered it because the U.S. media, of course, did not. Uh, and this was the visit of President Xi. And Xi is this XI, right? This is the phonetic alphabet that's in use, right? So anyway, President Xi of China was hosted in London by the Queen, by Cameron, by the House of Lords, by the House of Commons, by the Foreign Office, by the oligarchy in general. And this was a sort of, um, I would call it maybe a once in a century uh, event uh, for the British. The previous one had been in 1901, we can talk about it, when King Edward VII uh, opened his alliance with uh, Japan at that time, 1901. But this time it's, it's with China. And the content of this alliance is not completely um, evident in all the details, but the general outlines are clear enough. It means that despite the British commitments in NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the military treaty, and despite their commitments under the Treaty of uh, Lisbon of the European Union, and I think of the Treaty of Maastricht also, uh, the British are uh, going to ignore those, and they're going to be guided by their common cause with the People's Republic of China. And this will mean, uh, first of all, that Britain will become the banker of the Chinese world empire, which China is bent now, I would say, on assembling. Uh, this is similar, if you want a historical parallel, and I, I suspect that there are people in Oxford and Cambridge who think in these terms, because they're fairly evident for you know people who have some historical background. Uh, it was the Genoese. Uh, the Genoese were a, a, a beaten down Italian city-state, right, with a huge banking system. Remember, there was a rivalry between Venice and Genoa, and the Venetians came out on top, uh, at least for a while. But the Genoese fought back, and even though they had been pretty, pretty badly, you know, punched around, they had a second wind by becoming the bankers of the of the Spanish Empire. So Genoa worked for the Spanish Empire, and when the treasure ships came from Peru loaded with silver, it was the Genoese bankers who essentially, uh, you know, marketed this and turned it into cash and sent it to uh, the coffers of King Philip II of Spain. Right, and the, the Genoese, of course, skimmed off a lot. So in the same way. London wants to become the world hub of the renminbi, uh, the people's dollar, right? Renminbi or yuan. Uh, and not just are they going to become the clearing hub, right, where you, you know, put all the transactions together. But they are going to assist China in attempting to establish the renminbi as a world reserve currency. And not just as a world reserve currency, but as the world reserve currency. In other words, the British, with their usual treachery, right, because this is what they're famous for, are joining with China to attempt to essentially demolish what's left of the U.S. dollar. In the same process, they're going to be attacking the euro, and I believe the Japanese yen will also take some pretty bad hits. But uh, the principal target is, of course, the dollar. So you can look at this now as a um, the Brexit is a step towards implementing 
that alliance, uh, for example, the Brexit means that if the British are not in the European Union, they will not have to uh, pay any attention at all to the regulations coming from uh, Brussels, coming from the European Commission and the bureaucracy of the European Union, right, in in Brussels and, and also in Strasbourg. The British will be able to do what they want. Uh, they will not have any uh, version of what we would here call the Wall Street sales tax. In other words, there will be no tax, you can guarantee, no tax on the turnover of the city of London. Right? In other words, the, the transactions, the derivatives, the parasitism, the speculation, the paper economy, the casino economy, all of that will remain untouched. And even something like bankers' bonuses, right? which was actually for the people who supported Brexit, uh, it was a big issue that they did not want the European Commission telling them what was a reasonable bonus for a city of London uh, banker. So you, you probably uh, heard libertarians, various other kinds of uh, purveyors of disinformation. They, they claim that this is somehow a victory for populism or a victory for freedom. It is completely cynical, completely top-down, and completely manipulated. Uh, and the way that worked was the Rupert Murdoch, right? Fox News is what it means, right? Fox News. His operation in Britain is Sky Television and The Sun. The Sun being one of those infamous London afternoon evening tabloids. Uh, and similarly, the Daily Mail, in other words, other London tabloids played successfully on the fears and resentments of British pensioners, the little pensioners and the little cottagers in the shires, right, out in places like, you know, Somerset or, you know, other, other southern uh, English parts, which are a little bit more prosperous. But above all, in the north, in rural Yorkshire in particular, uh, the industrial north, which is now a rust bowl ravaged by Margaret Thatcher, who essentially destroyed all of British uh, coal mining and many other industries. Uh, those people are in desperate straits, and they somehow were stampeded by the cynical, racist, xenophobic, hate-mongering propaganda of Rupert Murdoch and his crew backed up by these two opportunistic demagogues, Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London, right? He's that, the blonde pretty boy. And uh, Nigel Farage, who is a, I guess, just a scoundrel. He's a, a city of London stockbroker, a stock jobber, who uh, found a new career as the head of UKIP, UK Independence Party. So United Kingdom Independence Party. This is sort of a libertarian racist uh, brew, right? Not unlike, say, Ron Paul or somebody like this, but with a with a special, uh, again, British xenophobia, right? Great Britain, I think the, the motto of the country might well be wogs begin at Calais, right? In other words, the foreigners start when you get to the other side of the English Channel and you get to Calais, right? You're dealing with uh, wogs, with, with foreigners. So that, that contempt for the outside world, right? The tight little island, little England, um, and so forth. The mentality of Colonel Blimp. It, this is legendary. So this is, this is what they uh, succeeded in playing on. But the real purpose has nothing at all to do with the announced purpose. And it's going to be the Anglo-Chinese alliance. And of course, 
the Anglo-Chinese alliance is directed most of all against the United States. So this is the British thank you, right? Thanks for saving us in 1917. Thanks for saving us in 1941. We're now going to stab you in the back and join with China to wage economic warfare against the United States. So this is a grave danger. And, you know, it's a, it's a, a market of dupes, which has succeeded extraordinarily well, because it's going to be one, one in about 10 million people in the United States who have any idea what is really going on. So we hope to, to try to improve that uh, today. How will exiting the European Union affect the average British citizen? Well, again, this is the last thing they were considering, but it's, it's going to be a, uh, a disaster, right? Um, for example, just in terms of, of the promises, right? How dumb can you be to say, let's leave the European Union when there are a lot of people, uh, for example, if you're a student and you want to study under the Erasmus program, Erasmus is a system of European scholarships and exchange programs and so forth. And in you know, today's world, with the financial aid being so hard to come by, if you're a British uh, teenager right, and you would like to go and study in Germany or Italy or Romania, wherever it is, Poland, you depend on this Erasmus. That's, that's going to be over. Uh, if you, uh, are a British farmer, your, uh, economic existence can depend on the subsidies under the common agricultural policy, CAP of the European Union. Uh, but then you, you know, you'd say, well, maybe there are other, you know, other people, these pensioners, what were the pensioners told, right? Since the pensioners, of course, the old people are the ones who voted for it. Um, what were they told? Well, they were told that the British uh, government makes a payment of 350 million pounds. It's about half a half a billion dollars. Say it's it's 500 million uh, U.S. dollars. They make that payment to the Brussels uh, European Commission, right, to fund all those programs. Right, there's the uh, the European Regional Fund, right, which has helped in particular Ireland tremendously. Uh, in, in the say the first ten years of this uh, of this century, three hundred and fifty million pounds a week. So the promise from the Brexit camp, from Nigel Farage, and from Boris Johnson, was that that money would immediately be rerouted, so that it would not go to Brussels, but it would go to the British National Health Service, which of course is chronically underfunded. And there are waiting lists because it's it's underfunded, right? The British Conservative Party ultimately hates it, but they haven't been able to destroy it. So as soon as the, the vote came in, this 2% victory, paper thin, uh, the journalist went to Farage and said, well, now, uh, when do we start channeling the money into the National Health Service? And Farage's response was unbelievable cynicism, saying, no, we never promised that. I would never have made such a promise, right? This is like Trump, right? He says one thing and then he denies it the next day and they play it back to him on tape and he still denies that it ever happened. So imagine this as a sellout. In other words, the selling point for these poor elderly people, these pensioners, was that we're going to save the National Health Service for another generation or so, right? In other words, National Health Service is what a Republican would call socialized medicine. In other words, everybody gets guaranteed medical care, although since it's underfunded, you're going to have to wait a while and the, and the quality is not going to be what you want. Well, in this case, 
350 million pounds were somehow promised, but then they disappeared. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Behind the Brexit, the British Oligarchy's Deal with China. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I, I think it would probably take too long to go through the entire catalog of, of how people are going to be hurt by this in ways that they, they do not know. Um, for example, in France, uh, in the northern French town of Calais, right, we've just mentioned them, Wogs begin at Calais, there is a camp of uh, primarily black Africans and people from North Africa who have somehow gotten the idea that it's better to be in the United Kingdom. I don't for the life of me know where this comes from because it is absurd, right? If you were doing it by any rational measure, you'd say if you were a refugee, you'd better be in Germany or Sweden or France even. But no, they want to go to to Britain. I don't know why. So there's been for for many years now, there's a treaty between uh, France and the United Kingdom, which says the French government will stop those Africans and Middle Easterners, you're going to keep them in Calais in a camp. And this it's infamous, right? You've probably seen pictures on television. It flares up with a riot every couple of months. It's called the jungle. Now the mayor of Calais says to the British government, look here, since you British have departed from the scene, I'm going to send them on. I'm not going to stop them from getting on the channel, right? The channel tunnel train or the channel ferries, we're going to let them get on and you deal with them. So there's going to be a crisis in places like Dover and Folkestone, right? Those British ports where the ferries still do uh, apply their trade. So it's going, it's going to be a disaster. But again, I don't think, I think the, the way to look at it is um, the, the real damage is at a much higher level. Let's look inside the coalition. Can we do that? I'd like to just make clear to people who, who did this, because we know. Uh, first of all, the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, is a virulent, right, a fanatical supporter of Brexit, and the way we know this is because she actually had a clash. She had a freakout with a guy called Clegg. Now you may remember Clegg. Nick Clegg comes from the Liberal Democratic Party, and you'll remember that they were in a coalition with Cameron and the Conservatives, the Tories. Uh, but that coalition ended with the last election about a year and a half ago. So at some kind of a, an official function in Buckingham Palace, this Clegg went to Queen Elizabeth and said, Your Majesty, I'm begging you here on bended knee, as they do, for uh, I want you to support Britain staying in the European Union. And she exploded. Right? She said, We don't want any part of that. Right? I'm tired of the European Union. I'm not going to support that anymore. So you can see that on my website, tarpley.net. We have links to three separate articles in the British press. One of them is actually The Sun, the one done by uh, Rupert Murdoch, right? So uh, there's no doubt that the Queen actually said these things. Right? She's in, you know, Rupert Murdoch is proud because his, his allegiance, he's an American citizen, but his his allegiance is to the Queen. There's no doubt about that. So she she's in favor of Brexit. Then we look at Rupert Murdoch, right? In other words, Fleet Street. Fleet Street is the newspaper media hub in London. Right? Again, those tabloids were all 
uh, scaring the pensioners with Brexit. But then there's a side of it that is hardly reported, uh, and that's the city of London. Now, the idea here is you have a, a, a kind of a swamp of um, sort of, you know, hidebound routinier, people who just want to go along with the status quo. And for the past, what, 40 years at least, a principal source of income for the city of London is that they parasitize continental European production and exports. In other words, German production, very significant. French production, still some of that. Italian, too. So uh, Austria, right? You name it. Netherlands, right? Belgium. These places have a certain amount of industrial base left. So whatever trade goes on, the British provide the financing. They often provide the financing from a pool of money known as the euro dollar market. These are dollars that have been parked in London since, in some cases, 1960 or so, right? So quite a while. Uh, and that is one of their invisible earnings, right? The city of London runs on invisible earnings, banking, insurance, financing, all kinds of things like that. It's, it's the typical thing that the British have been doing for centuries. Um, so that's okay for the average banker, but then you get this adventurous group and, and their argument goes like this. Let me just tell you who they are first. Uh, Bar Boris Johnson, of course, represents them and, and Boris Johnson testified in front of a committee of the British, uh, parliament of the house of commons. And they asked him who in the city of London, what powerful bankers support you? And he said, there's a small group. And he named Lord Blackwell of Lloyd's Bank. So Lloyd's Bank is one of the um, limited number, three or four. How many are left, right? Some of them bankrupt in the last crisis. But Lloyd's Bank, right? Lloyd's of London. This is not Lloyd's of London Insurance Company. This is Lloyd's Bank. So that's one. Then Royal Bank of Scotland. This one uh, went bankrupt in the last crisis. It was bailed out. But oligarchs still own it and control it. Lady Noakes, N-O-A-K-E-S, was the second one. And then there was Sir Henry Angest of the Arbuthnot Banking Group. So Blackwell, Noakes, and Angest. Now, these names, of course, here in the U.S. mean nothing, right? Who are they? Who knows who they are? But the idea is there's a group in the uh, city of London of adventurers, in other words, extremists. I, I would compare them to people like Peter Thiel, here in the United States, they would like to have uh, essentially no minimum wage, no labor legislation, no wages and hours act, no child labor laws, all of that, right? Complete free market. That's what a lot of them seem to want. And they feel that they can do that together with the Chinese because the Chinese labor practices, right? The Chinese, uh, when they go overseas with their investment, they say, we don't care you know, what the labor conditions are. And as a matter of fact, if they're paying, they don't want a minimum wage, right? They have no idea of labor legislation or the rights of workers or the right to collective bargaining or other things. So the extremist group in the city of London feels that through the alliance with China, they can get a new avocation of being the world renminbi clearing hub, and they can get you know, all kinds of entrees uh, through China, into China, and so on. One form of the London argument is this. The British would say, here, here is Great Britain, 
we're a middle-ranking power in decline, right? Our industry was destroyed by Thatcher 30 years ago, and we haven't been able to regenerate anything, right? They completely live off the city of London. And they say, we are caught between Washington on the one side and then this European super state, they always call it, the super state, because they don't like it, right? It's going to regulate them. Uh, Paris and Berlin, or Berlin, Paris, maybe better. So the British say, we're, we're caught here. Washington on the one side, Berlin, Paris on the other. And they say, if we don't do something radical, right, break out really fast, we're going to end up like the Netherlands. Now, the, what they mean by the Netherlands was there was a Dutch empire. Right? Many don't remember, right? They had Indonesia. They had, uh, you know, all kinds of possessions uh, around the world, right? So that was Amsterdam, uh, the great Amsterdam Bank and Rotterdam and so forth. And the British always look at that and they say, that's what we don't want to become. In other words, we don't want to become a has-been. We don't want to become an ex-world power, a former world power. We don't want that. That's not good enough for Britain. So they feel that they have to you know, take a plunge, right? Risk a lot because these people are adventurers, right? They are not um, people who think in terms of stable uh, institutions. Uh, so they say, why don't we go with China? China <laughs> – now they've picked up this this ally, this banking power that can teach them the ways of treachery and currency manipulation and so forth, and already has, and uh, and they can benefit from that. So that's that's the combination that that's coming after us. And notice, very soon after the vote, Donald Trump was over there in Scotland cavorting at his Turnberry Golf Resort with none other than. Rupert Murdoch. So it means that Murdoch and Trump, two reactionary billionaires, I would say fascist billionaires, at least in the case of Trump, um, that's, that's Brexit. In other words, that's what that's going to be. It's going to be the rule of the billionaires in precisely this, uh, this sense. And therefore, no victory for any uh, outsiders or any uh, cottagers or pensioners or anything like that. Those people are going to be ground into dust President Xi of China visited London in October 2015 to great fanfare. Now, you've mentioned this. Uh, that was a very big deal. I remember that. What was the visit all about, and how is it that uh, the city of London could team up with China in a financial sense? How would this work? China has a banking system, and they also have this thing that was a big issue at the end of last year, right? The AIIB, that is to say the Asian International Infrastructure Bank. And this is a Chinese um, challenger, let's say, to the World Bank uh, and to some extent to the International Monetary Fund. Now, this, this uh, it, it becomes a terrible situation, of course, because the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank have pursued bankrupt policies, Malthusian policies, right? They've, they've uh, hobbled and sabotaged the uh, economic development of, of developing countries, third world countries uh, all over the world for decades. Okay, so now along comes the, uh, the renminbi, right? Along comes China 
and the fact that they're going to pass the United States. Uh, and in terms of the economy as a whole, they will. And in terms of production, it's pretty clear they already have, given the, the uh, crackpot ruling class that we have here. But the, the AIIB, and you remember, the United States invited all the uh, you know, NATO countries, European Union countries, don't join the AIIB. Well, that, that's a stupid position, right? That's a, that's a stupid losing Wall Street uh, position, right? Having nothing to offer except derivatives. And you, and you tell people, don't join the alternative. Uh, so fine. But the IMF and the World Bank, we know all about. But the AIIB and the practices of China, what will that look like? Will that actually be any better? The AIIB was the vehicle. So the U.S. proved unable with you know, Secretary of the Treasury Liu and Secretary of State Kerry, right? Imagine these guys arguing. It's, it's pathetic, right? So the AIIB became a kind of a success, right? It, you know, it got lots of members, but uh, it also indicates the tremendous weakness of the U.S. position. In other words, we don't have the Marshall Plan anymore, right? The success of the U.S. in the post-war world was based on the Marshall Plan. In other words, a willingness to finance economic recovery and then even some economic development way back then in developing countries uh, and so forth, right? We had the Alliance for Progress. We have nothing of this type anymore. The entire foreign policy is made by Wall Street. It's a bankrupt policy. Uh, they have indeed deindustrialized the United States over many decades. So now we're left in this position of weakness. So there's no doubt about that. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Behind the Brexit, the British oligarchy's deal with China. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The one thing that, that people ha have been puzzled by is how could the British bootleg this whole thing through their uh, political system? So maybe we just talk for a second about the, the way the British uh, oligarchy works, because I think that might be another, another important point. Um, how can you call a referendum? Uh, here in the United States, there's no such thing. States can do referenda, right? But you can't have a, a national U.S. referendum. Uh, it's never been done, right? So, so how does that work? Uh, the, um, the main um, question here is that the British do not have a constitution. They talk about a British constitution, but there is none. And here's how you can find out. The first way you'd say is, well, if you claim to have a constitution, right, king, queen, lords, commons, all this, show me the document. And they say, well, no, the British constitution is not a written constitution. And of course, the, the whole 19th century in Europe was that countries, right, be it, you know, Germany, France, Italy, uh, Piedmont, whatever, they wanted written constitutions because if you if you don't have a written constitution, you don't have a constitution that you can cite because somebody else could say, well, no, that's not the tradition at all. So they don't have a written constitution. And from, from my money, that means they have no constitution at all. But then you could say, well, okay, the British claim is that instead of a written constitution, they've got this body of precedents. They have traditions 
and precedence. And what that means under their system is that the parliament, in other words, the House of Commons and the government can do practically anything they want. And whatever they choose to do becomes part of this body of precedents and uh, traditions. It's very different from our notion, right? Because the U.S. constitutional concept is the Constitution is above the government. We have statute laws that can be made by the Congress and the president. Okay, statute law, short term, usually, often. But then we have uh, constitutional law, which is much harder to change, right? If you want to change the Constitution, you'd need to have the House and the Senate voting for it. And then you need three quarters of the states, three quarters of all those state legislatures. That's a tall order. Uh, so that's what it takes in the U.S. Under the British system, the government, in other words, the cabinet, the ministers, the prime minister and the rest of the ministers are above the Constitution because whatever they do can be then incorporated or is pretty much automatically incorporated into the Constitution. Uh, it's, it's, it's very strange. It's, it's very different. It's practically the opposite. There is no, as I understand it, there's no precedent for a British government being told you can't do that because it's unconstitutional. Whereas here we have this, you know, relatively frequently that laws are struck down because they are unconstitutional in the British system. They don't have it. The other question you could say is, well, if there's no official written constitution like that everybody can read like we have you could say to them well uh surely some reputable publishing house right some you know british publisher has assembled an authoritative compilation of the various precedents and the various kinds of um traditions that apparently make up the constitution right wouldn't that be reasonable and the answer then is no, there is no such thing. Well, why, why not? Right? It's just as a guide, right? An unofficial guide that says here, here are the precedents that you have to be aware of uh, in dealing with the British government. Because many of these precedents are secret precedents. They'd say, well, you know, you, you can't uh, you know, do something or other because we have a precedent from the star chamber right? The secret council of Henry VIII or Charles II or whoever, right? In other words, some king meeting in secret with counselors has decided something. And that, that is how we can come after you, right? We can arrest you and put you on trial, jail you, execute you. Uh, we, can, we can do all that. I would urge people to think about this movie uh, V for Vendetta. Remember this about the you know Guy Fawkes and uh, the people wearing those crazy masks? It's about 10 years ago now. Um, in that one, you see that Britain is a dictatorship run by a pretty bloody uh, dictator. And uh, I, I think this, this is the outcome that you could imagine coming out of this adventurous uh, ploy right by this faction of the of the city of uh, of London so I think it's it's very ugly for the British people so and again uh, it's chaos let maybe we want to do the chaos want to do the chaos argument I think that might come up at this point all right 
Well, what I was going to ask you, and this has to do with this chaos argument, I would say, right. is that this Nigel Farage of the Independent Party and Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London, who were big advocates of this Brexit vote to get out of the EU, what's happened to them? They've, they've now, what, resigned, disappeared? What, what was the plan? Yeah, they they have strutted and fretted their hour on the stage and now may be seen no more. In other words, these were throwaway demagogues, right? They were just actors. They were uh, crisis actors. They were uh, surveillance role players, whatever they were. Uh, They were simply there as plausible demagogues to stampede people in favor of of voting for for the Brexit, right? So... Farage in particular was a, a, a very nasty uh, fellow, again, a, a stockbroker. He was a city of London stockbroker who found a better way to make money and to be famous. Boris Johnson, similarly, he was a combination of Fleet Street, scurrilous journalism, right, yellow journalism, and city of London, uh, an adventurer, right? These are also, both of them, narcissists, guaranteed. Uh, and they they functioned right. They went out and made these wild promises. They played shamelessly on racism, xenophobia, very much like Trump. They, they seem to come out of the same kind of uh, you know printout uh, as Trump. So they now disappear. In terms of the uh, the Tory Party, the Conservative Party, we now have this woman who is the current Home Secretary. So she's the police minister. Right? She's the internal security czar or czarina and she now emerges as the um the candidate likely candidate for uh prime minister when cameron quits now things happen fast in the british system right the general election usually takes one month the whole campaign not a year and a half like here one month what what that shows by the way is our system is actually better it's harder to pull a coup it's harder to stampede everybody Right, because if if there'd been a vote on Trump, you know, in the first two or three months, he he might have done much better. Right, we've learned a lot of the you know the ugly dark side, the real side of Trump in the meantime. So uh, it's harder. But under the British system, things happen fast. And if a prime minister is going to resign, he's usually out within 24, 48 hours. Then there's also on the on the Labour Party side, this is also a sad story. People have to understand this. The leader of the Labour Party is Jeremy Corbyn, who is a kind of, what can we say? He's supposed to be a socialist, but I would say he's a left liberal at best. He's a very weak social democrat. I would say he's sort of like Bernie Sanders. In other words, uh, not not a strong uh, candidate. So he's he's the head of the Labour Party. Now, the Labour Party traditionally is in favor of Europe, right? They're sort of social democratic, Labour. Um, they're supposed to be in favor, right? The Conservatives, the Tories have always been Eurosceptics. So uh, the the story on Corbyn is that he was supposed to be the leader of the Stay campaign, right? Remain uh, in in the European Union. He did this with a half-hearted fecklessness, right, a complete lack of um, commitment, that people could, could look at him and say, well, I can't tell whether you're really for staying or, or leaving. So he's likely to be on his way out. I don't know what the news of today is, but I, I would say he has days 
before he uh, is either thrown out or comes very close to being thrown out. And by the way, this teaches an important lesson. It's not enough to have some good program points. You also have to be able to lead. You have to have the courage, the guts, the gumption. Uh, one of the, one of the people in his shadow cabinet said, "I, you know, this is this is the son of Tony Benn talking, right? Uh, Anthony Wedgwood Benn, grand old man of the labor left. So that guy's son is around, and he said, "Yeah, Jeremy Corbyn is a nice guy, but he is not a leader. In other words, he would not fight. He he couldn't bring himself to fight um, in favor of one one choice or another. So both parties are in chaos, right?" The conservatives have a leadership crisis and labor has a leadership crisis. But now you mentioned this at the beginning. Let's get let's go back to it if we can. The differentiation in terms of the vote. I guess we've already covered the fact that young people voted to stay in Europe, partly because they could see that's their only hope of jobs or education, because the British Conservative Party and City of London elite, they're not going to pay for that. So that's going to come from Europe or not at all. So the young people have lost out. Ironically, the people who will have to live with this decision the longest, the youth, they, they have been completely cut out by the elderly, right? It's a gerontocracy, and that will be also used to divide, right? You can see the propaganda already that these uh, elderly people have voted uh, essentially to protect themselves from Europe and to act out their own uh, fantasies of uh, you know racial invasion by by foreigners, and the young will have to will have to live with it. Okay, so the youth, Europe, the elderly, no to Europe. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show: Behind the Brexit, the British oligarchy's deal with China. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, the other one of the regional division. So England, in the sense of you know narrow, little old England, uh, they voted uh, primarily to to leave, except in cities. Right, Leeds uh, went very narrowly in favor of staying. Manchester went very narrowly in favor of staying, and above all, London went about sixty forty in favor of staying. In the European Union, but all of the you know the the country towns and the smaller cities, that's where the uh, the Leave vote got their minuscule two percent uh, margin. Okay, so England, except for London, let's say, except for London and the main cities, uh, is in favor of leaving. And this is this is also bad because it means that the the economically active places, right the the places that are going to create your future have, you know, their will has been overcome by essentially a backward, unqualified majority whipped up by Rupert Murdoch and his and his uh, and his uh, xenophobic uh, fear machine. All right, but now let's look Scotland. Okay, Scotland is generally poorer than England, and that has been accentuated since Thatcher. Right, Thatcher was very good for the southeast quadrant. Right, from London into Kent, right? And then to the English Channel. They did okay, but everybody else. And the further north you go, the rougher it gets. And once you cross the line from, from Yorkshire and Northumberland into Scotland, then it gets really bad. So the Scots 
came very close to leaving the United Kingdom a couple of years ago, 5% margin uh, to stay with, uh, with, with uh, the United Kingdom. And you remember how this worked. When the Scots were about to vote to leave the United Kingdom, the European Union said, don't you leave, you Scots, because if you're out of the United Kingdom, you'll have to be readmitted to the European Union and we may not let you in. So you better stay where you are. And the Scots said, "Okay, if we're staying in the United Kingdom as a way to stay in the European Union, we'll have to grin and bear it. So 5% margin. Now, this time around, it was about 65 to 35. It was about two to one. Scotland says, we want to stay. So now what happens? Again, Scotland benefits from the European Regional Fund, from various uh, subsidies, and they need them because they're deindustrialized and it's, it's poor. Right? The further north you go, the worse it gets. So uh, the Scots want to stay. And as soon as this vote was taken, the uh, Scottish National Party said, look here, we're, we're going to stay in Europe no matter what. And we may just decide to stay and you leave and we'll stay. Or we may have to have another referendum because this time staying in the United Kingdom equals leaving Europe and that they do not want. OK, so that's Scotland. And then there's Northern Ireland, right? Ulster. This is the the north uh, east quadrant sort of of uh, Ireland, right, of the island. And uh, they 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 voted by a somewhat lesser majority. They want to stay. And the, the question for them is even it's even simpler because this is the only land border between Great Britain and the European Union. It's the border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. Northern Ireland or Ulster is a it's a colony. right? It's a it's an oppressed minority of the British. Right. The British have fought for hundreds of years to keep control of some part of Ireland. And now they may be losing it. Uh, and that, of course, is for some of them, that's a that's a war and peace issue. So we should mention also Wales, right? Wales there in the in the West. Uh, they voted uh, also to uh, to uh, to leave. But I guess by a smaller, a smaller vote. So you can deal with four pieces, England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. So England and Wales want to leave. And the other two, Northern Ireland, Scotland want to stay. And if you're if you're Northern Ireland and you're going to stay, that has the added attraction of the reunification of Ireland. It was finally, after you know 100 years or so of divided existence, right, or from the 1920s at least until now, it could actually become one Ireland with all the counties included. Except that the British uh, don't want that; They're, they'd be happy to uh, to fight. Uh, at least some of them would, right? Some of some of the more extreme uh, elements, right? This is not the city of London now. These are maybe people in the army or what have you. So this is already chaos. Now let's let's look uh, as if the British leave. Here's another dimension of chaos. The British have been holding Gibraltar for uh, well since about 1703, 1705. It goes back to the War of the Spanish Succession. Spain has never given up on Gibraltar, and as soon as this vote was taken, the Spanish government, parts of the Spanish government said, look, if you British leave the European Union, we want Gibraltar, or at least we want to co-administer Gibraltar. In other words, maybe you stay to some extent, but we want a big piece of the action. We want to be part 
of the decisions. Now, of course, again, uh, this potentially is a war and peace issue, so much so that uh, as it was going on, the British sent a nuclear submarine, a nuclear submarine, HMS Ambush, nuclear submarine was sent to Gibraltar to deter, to intimidate Spain from making a move, which they might you know, conceivably do. How about uh, if the British break up, will uh, Argentina revive their, I think, justified claim to the uh, Malvinas, the so-called Falkland Islands? Uh, what will happen there? And then we already mentioned Ireland. So you can see three possible war scenarios, Gibraltar, Falkland Islands, and uh, Northern Ireland, Ireland, right? You can see that all uh, going on, right? Coming. Now, how about, can we take this, the chaos scenario to continental Europe now? Because this is, okay, this is the next step. Um, now that the British have left, every crackpot tin horn demagogue, every xenophobe, uh, every extremist in the continent of Europe has advanced their own claim to a referendum. You know, uh, referenda or plebiscites, right? This is the same thing. A referendum equals a plebiscite. Plebiscites, referenda, used to have a very bad name because if we go back and look, they have generally been the, uh, the doorway into tyranny. They're not, they're not good, stable, democratic things. This is where our, you know, our constitutional founding fathers knew better. Uh, the coming of Napoleon as emperor of France was accomplished how? By a plebiscite, by a referendum. There was a referendum. Do you want Napoleon Bonaparte to become the emperor of the republic? And they had a big box for yes and a tiny box for no. Uh, so that's how he got it. How about this? The status of Hitler as Führer of the Reich was accomplished by way of a referendum, a plebiscite. And this was 1934 referendum. Do you want the offices of president of the Reich combined with the chancellorship, merge that into one office and call it Führer? And the answer was, or at least the vote count said, yes, yeah. And that's how Hitler was able to style himself as the Führer. So the track record on referenda, not so good. But now we have in the continent of Europe, right, despite the fact that referenda were, you know, they were often, you know, a good history class would have taught you, you see, you have to watch out with this stuff because it seems to be very democratic, but it's actually a way to stampede people. So now we have Marine Le Pen, the daughter of Vichy, the daughter of the uh, Pétain, you know, Nazi puppet state in France, practically. Uh, she wants a, uh, a referendum on whether France should leave the European Union, right? This is, a, this is a woman who's built her house on racism, xenophobia, and the rest. And then we have uh, Geert Wilders in the Netherlands, who also wants an exit referendum. Uh, in Italy, there's a competition. There are actually two. There is the Northern League, the Lega Nord. They want an uh, Italian exit uh, referendum, but there's also... Beppe Grillo and his five-star movement, right? Again, all demagogues, all you know, parties of backlash, anger, and so forth, uh, very few constructive notions. So they want that. 
Then we go on, right? Uh, the Hungary of Orban uh, in Hungary. Uh, you know, they look to be going this way. So essentially, every xenophobic party on the continent is talking about uh, leaving. Now, you remember, maybe we just, we just remind people of this. The crisis of the, uh, of the euro started uh, with an idea dinner at the offices of Mones, Crespi, and Hart in Manhattan. And this was in the very early spring, as I recall, of 2011. You can find this on tarpley.net. I just look into my, my previous um, you know, archive there, and you'll see uh, Mones. Try that. M-O-N-E-S-S. I guess we'll find it for you. Or Crespi, C-R-E-S-P-I. That's a, it's a you know, stock brokerage and uh, investment bank in, in, in Manhattan. And they said, well, you can't attack the euro frontally. Because that's a trillion dollars of euros per day. But what you can do is to attack the very small, limited, illiquid, vulnerable markets where the individual European countries sell their bonds, the government bonds. So they invented – Goldman Sachs invented the concept of the pigs, Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Greece, Spain. They attacked those bonds and uh, – and they eventually got crises in quite a few of them, right? Spain, Portugal, Ireland all went into crisis, but principally, of course, Greece, right, with the, where the, the attack was, was driven maybe the farthest because this is also one of the smallest of the markets. So that was a cynical strategic attack on the euro done by people in Wall Street at a time when the dollar was weak because of all the, the uh, pumping of money by the Fed. To, to prevent a total collapse of the U.S. after the, the, the crash of 2008, 2009. So the dollar needed protection, and the best way to do that was to have a, uh, an, you know, an attack on, on the euro. Remember also that Christine Romer, who was the head of the Council of Economic Advisors in the, the first Obama administration, her doctoral thesis was how flight capital out of Europe in the late 1930s had saved the dollar and had propped up the uh, the U.S. economy. So she's an expert in driving money out of Europe and into the U.S. So that was that was this crisis. So it is, I think, very fatuous to say that there's some inherent problem with the with the euro. The problem with the euro, of course, is neoliberal thinking in the European Commission. Right? European Commission used to be social democratic, Christian democratic. There was a significant amount of pro-worker, pro-production, pro-union thinking. Now, of course, it's all neoliberal. But you, you know, if it could change one way, it could change back. So get busy and organize. But leaving the European Union generally leaves you in a worse position than it was before. Right? Why were the Anglo-Americans and why are they, uh, the, the British in particular, trying to break up the European Union? Right? Maybe there are probably some U.S. bankers, undoubtedly, who who would go along with this. But you get the idea. So I don't think you gain anything by leaving it. I think you, it's like um, Rosa Luxemburg's argument about Poland, right? She said Poland should not become independent of Russia because Poland by itself is going to be more reactionary uh, and harder to deal with than it would be as part of uh, Russia where it could link up with others. That's, by the way, with, with Britain now. England is going to become an extreme right-wing country because the, the, the left-wing votes depended on Scotland in particular. 
you know, the Labour Party centre of gravity was years ago in Scotland. Now, a lot of those have gone to the Scottish National Party. But England is going to be, uh, you know, a Tory government, a conservative, right wing, reactionary government as far as the eye can see. So you're going to be dealing with that. And they'll be allied with uh, with China under Xi. Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Hope to see you soon. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been Behind the Brexit, the British Oligarchy's Deal with China. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, Your Guide Through the Worst Financial Crisis in Human History, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Obama, The Unauthorized Biography, and co-author of George Bush, the unauthorized biography. Webster Tarpley is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity at againstausterity.org. Visit the Tax Wall Street Party at twsp.us to sign up for the daily briefing. Visit his website at tarpley.net. That's tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yarrow Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, Are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher. And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me?